a graduate of Asbury College and Asbury Theological Seminary, Dennis Kinlaw received his Ph.D. from Brandeis University. He was a lifelong student of God's Word and human culture, always looking for evidence of God's activity in human life. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Let's turn to uh, the close of the book of Joshua. And you're aware that uh, in four hours, there's no way you can deal with everything in Joshua. And uh, 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 we've tried to put it in a bit of context and deal with some of the text. But uh, let's look at the close of the book. Will you let me read beginning with chapter 23, Joshua's Farewell. Very tender scene. After a long time had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then old and well advanced in years, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered, between the Jordan and the great sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. He will push them out before you, and you will take possession of their land, as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routs a thousand, because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. Isn't it interesting that the basic theme about the relationship in this, in the beginning of Scripture for us to God is one of love? Now that does not mean it is not faith. It is the kind of faith that leads into a love where you trust him and you trust him enough that you respond to him in love. He wants us to give that kind of response to him. And here it is. It permeates these early books, particularly Deuteronomy and Joshua. But then on so later. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you all the evil he has threatened until he has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem or Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. 
I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Now let me stop there for a moment and just uh, uh, note something. Do you notice that Joshua could not understand himself and his position except in relation to the history of the people of God? You know, one of the things that I get uneasy about us is uh, in 20th century evangelicalism, I think oftentimes we forget that we are part of a historical process and we are to learn from the whole thing. There's sort of an odd hopeness oftentimes about American Christians that we don't feel any need for knowing history in the past. And so you know what the consequence is? That we take the same wrong alleys that people took before and don't even know we're taking them. And if we knew our history and knew our past, we'd have the sensitivity to avoid those. There is a sense in which every generation is like a dwarf sitting on the shoulders of a giant, and the giant is the past. And the dwarf ought to be very good to the giant, because if he kicks him too much, he may dump him. And when he dumps him, he's in a sea of legs, and he's got to start all over again, that process. And so what you do is, we need that sense of history. And you'll notice that Joshua, his faith was a faith that was linked with a historical process. God, the God of all, the sovereign Lord of all creation, but at work in human history, and he was a part of that process. It was not American individualism. Now, he had a personal knowledge of God individualistically, but he was part of that process. Do you ever read any church history? There's a little Presbyterian lady in, in, in Mississippi who's dying today with cancer. She's in her 80s. She uh, spent her life in Zaire as a Presbyterian missionary. And somewhere or other, the Lord led her to get interested in the Anglican Reformation. Now, uh, I went to a Methodist, or to a college that is part of the Methodist heritage. And in college, I took a course in Renaissance and Reformation. So we studied Luther and Calvin. That was for our benefit. But do you know, we never did a thing with the Anglican Reformation, the English Reformation. That's what I come out of. I went to uh, Asbury Theological Seminary. I took a course in church history. When we came to the Reformation, we studied Luther and Calvin. We never read a line of Thomas Cranmer, to my knowledge, or, or really dealt with the Anglican Reformation. And yet that's our heritage. And it is one of the great chapters in human history, in Christian history. Well, this little Presbyterian lady got interested in Hugh Latimer. And so she started studying. She spent 11 years working on Hugh Latimer. She went to London. She went to Canterbury. She went. To, uh, she checked out all the sources. She said, I lived with him for 11 years. He's a personal friend. About two weeks ago, she said, you know, in a few weeks, I'm going to meet him. I love that victory over time, don't you? <laughs> she said, in a few weeks, I'm going to meet him. I'm going to get to ask all those questions that I've had in my mind all these years as I worked on him. Now, you know, if I could, I'd make every preacher in the United States and every person who's a leader in a local church read her story of Hugh Latimer. Because it's an incredible story. Let me just tell you one quick thing out of it. You'll forgive a digression. But uh, I found this thing in Zondervan. I was on a committee, an editorial committee, and we're sitting at a table, and I looked up, and there were all the books that Zondervan had in print. And it was a white-jacketed book there with black letters, L-A-T-I-M-E-R, on it. And uh, I knew nothing about Hugh Latimer. I knew the name. I knew that he was a martyr for Christ. And I knew enough to know that when they got ready to light the faggots and burn him and his fellow bishop at the stake, he said, be of good cheer, Brother Ridley. We will light a candle today that will brighten all England. Now, I knew that much, but that's all I knew. So I looked up and I saw that and I said, at the coffee break, is that a good biograph, a good book on Latimer? The guy pulled it down and handed it to me. And, uh, he said, uh, well, we can't sell it. I said, really? No, nah, he said, we can't sell it. It just won't sell. So, uh, it was a hardback, sold for 18 bucks in those days. I read the thing. And so I picked up 800 copies for two bucks a piece and gave one to every preacher I could locate. <laughs> and you know the kind of thing in it? 
Hugh Latimer led the battle as the preacher in the Anglican Reformation. And as he led it, he got in trouble with Henry VIII. And so Henry VIII threw him in the tower in prison. And Thomas Cranmer went to him and said, you need to let him out and you need to appoint him court preacher for Lent. So Hugh Latimer left the tower to go to the pulpit for the court preacher for Lent. Stood up to preach his first sermon during the Lenten season. Looked down there was Henry. <laughs> so he looked at Henry as king who had put him in prison and he backed up and raised his head and said, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say. You're in the presence of your king. And then he paused and looked at, <laughs> looked at Henry <laughs> and then he backed up again and he said, Latimer, Latimer, be very careful what you say. You're in the presence of the king of kings. Now, uh, I don't know about anybody else, but I, something happens to me when I find there are people like that. Now that's, uh, uh, we need to know because when you, you find the price these guys have paid that I have this, the price that, that I have, the insights that come to me from their sacrifices, uh, man, I need to pay a debt to them. So, uh, uh, we need, we need, we need to sense. You see, Joshua sensed that. He was part of something bigger than his generation. And you know, this concept that the last generation is the best one, and we're ahead of everybody else so we can forget everybody else. One of the byproducts of the process of the theory of evolution has nothing to do with science, but psychologically that's what's taken place. It's deadly. So all we do is simply repeat mistakes we've made before. So I love the fact that Joshua says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor lived beyond the river, and they worshipped other gods, and Joshua in his with his closing breath repeats the story of the people of God. And we need that sense that we are part of the people of God. Okay. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you, but I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan. You notice it's only now that he gets up to where he is and his involvement. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings, you did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Now the astounding thing is that apparently at the end of, of Joshua's life, there were still Hebrews who had in their personal possessions false gods. Sort of like us, isn't it? <laughs> we come home from church... <laughs> And then the rest of the week, somewhere in our lives, we've got uh, sources of support and, re and strength and encouragement and uh, that we rely on other than God. It's interesting. It's an old story, and it describes us to a T. So Joshua, at the end of his life, is saying, you need to clean up where the reality fits your words where the reality fits your words. And do you know it is grace can make the reality fit your words? You know, there's some people who have a hesitancy about that. But there's enough power in the blood of Christ 
to make the realities in your life fit your word. And so that's what, that's what Joshua is appealing for. Fear the Lord. Serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. You notice it's a journey, perilous journey. You will remember that Jesus, when he spoke to the most of the people that he spoke to personally, never said, believe on me, but said, follow me. Have you ever picked that up in the gospel? Now, you're not going to follow him if you don't believe. But it's the evangelists, when they talk about our relationship to him, that talk about the faith primarily. But when Jesus confronts anybody, he says, follow me. And it is a walk. It is a life. That's the reason I like that title that they gave me, Perilous Journey. It's a journey. Let me start with 16 again. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us out, brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Now I want to say something to you about that word jealous. You know, for a long time I read the Bible thinking that what this says, and it is used quite commonly in scripture, as I suspect you know, that he is a jealous God. I always felt that he was jealous for his rights over us. And he says, I'm God, and you're not giving me my proper due. (laughs) And so I'm unhappy with you because you're not giving me my proper due. (laughs) But you know what I believe is more at the heart of this than that? Yeah, I'm a jealous God, and I'm jealous for the best possible for you, Joyce. And I get very unhappy when I see you making choices that lead you into something less than the best that I intended for you. (laughs) That's a very different view of the jealousy of God. Now, why do I believe that? Because he's a father. He's a father. And you know, a father is jealous for his kids. Now, I've seen fathers that were jealous for their fatherly rights. I'm your father, and you ought to obey me. But there are fathers that are jealous for their children because they love them, and they're not concerned about their paternal position. They're concerned about the welfare of their child. Now, if you get to know Jesus, and he's the son of the father, and a reflection of the father, I think that's what you're going to find about the fatherhood of God. His jealousy is a concern that we know the best that he has for us and that we not give our lives to things that are going to destroy us, damage us, hinder us, infect us, and keep us from uh, the, the fullness of life that he intended us and the goodness of life that he intended for us. Okay, he says, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God and he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you. And why? God owes it to us to show us that when we take the wrong way, it's the wrong way. (laughs) When we take a wrong path, he owes it to us in love to show us that it is the wrong way. And so his judgments come, but the thing that motivates them is the heart that is behind the cross. Do you hear me on that? Now, I guess the reason I feel that so intensely is For so long, you know, I was living, you know, waiting for him to crack the whip over me because he wanted to get even with me because I hadn't done everything I ought to do for him, the Lord. But look, remember, I believe in God. What's the next word? 
and he's a better father than we are. And that's the great tragedy when a father here is not an example of the father there. Because then you will have a person who all his life will have to fight with false psychological states that hinder him. Do, do, do I make my point? Do I make any sense on that? You know, uh, I had a preacher just the other day say to me, he said, you know, my father deserted my mother and divorced her when I was two years of age. He was an alcoholic. And then my second father, whom she married, was an alcoholic and was cruel as could be. And he said, you know, I preached, as I, I think I told you this, until I was 40, and I never, I stayed always away from the fatherhood of God. Then I had a child, a son, and slowly I began to realize that all those years I had had a heretical notion of what God is really like. Okay, but the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, they said we are witnesses. Now then, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws, and Joshua recorded them in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua sent the people away each to his own inheritance. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount, of Mount Gaash. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for him, for Israel. Isn't that a, a beautiful illustration of the power of one life? Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. All of us are looking for leaders. All of us need a pastor. All of us needs a shepherd. And Je Joshua was that. And so they served the Lord while he lived. And Joseph's bones, now I want you to remember this because I'll come back to it. And Joseph's bones, one of the most interesting passages to me in the Bible. <laughs> and Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from from Egypt were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, the priest, and was buried at Gibeah, which he had, which had been allotted to his son Phinehas in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, as we said, Joshua is a transitional book. It stands between the Pentateuch and the book of Judges, which is a continuation of that story, and then you get to Samuel, and you get the kingdom established. And so it's an in-between uh, book. It is uh, important for us to see it in that relationship. Now, as I was thinking about that this morning, I thought about uh, something that happened in my own life, and uh, maybe this might be of interest to you, so let me digress just a second. I was doing some graduate work at Princeton and found myself in... Uh, a New Testament theology class that was way over my head and I wasn't ready for, taught by an old German professor named Otto Pieper. He's the one that I mentioned yesterday who uh, said, now you boys that underline your Bible, and I told you I closed mine. In that conversation when he said, you guys that underline your Bible, because I don't think there was a lady at that time in the class, he said, uh, let, me, let me tell you the way you ought to work. It's all right to uh, have underlined. But for God's sake, don't let your underlinings control you. Because he said, you see, what happens is, as you read, God quickens, the Spirit quickens a phrase, a word, a phrase, a sentence, a verse to you. You say, beautiful. You latch on to it. Maybe you memorize it, but you mark it, and that's precious to you. And that's a cornerstone for you. But he said, what you need to do is keep reading. And as you keep reading suddenly God will open up a paragraph around one of those verses. And when he opens up a paragraph around one of those verses, the verse is even more beautiful and more meaningful, and you got a bigger chunk. And then he says, as you keep reading, 
it'll not be just a paragraph. It'll be a chapter that'll open up. And he said, then when you get a chapter under your belt and you can think it through and carry it with you all the time, you've got an even stronger foundation. And then he says, if you'll just keep working, you'll suddenly begin to find their themes in the scripture. And he said, I'll tell you where the rich thing is. When you get to the place where you found a theme and you can start with Genesis and chase it through 66 books. Now, I got an ideal that day. I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you, it's a beautiful thing when you begin to see the unity of the word of God. And your faith is strengthened incredibly. And it is a whale of a lot more fun to read. And a whale of a lot more fun to study when you can see the interrelationships of the different sections. So because of that, I don't have any hesitancy in dealing with Joshua to fit it into the larger whole. Okay. Now, uh, there's a sense in which Joshua is to the Old Testament what Acts is to the New Testament. Now, I'm sure that some of you have already thought of that. But there, you, you notice what you have in the Old Testament. You've got the Pentateuch with five books. And then after those five books, you get the book of Joshua. And it is very much like in the New Testament, you get the four Gospels, the story of Jesus. The Pentateuch is the story of the beginning of the people of God. And it is the story of the figure of Moses. The Gospels is the story of the beginning of the church. And it is the story of the figure of Jesus. And the book of Acts follows up the, uh, follows up the, 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 the four Gospels. It's interesting that there is a great similarity between Moses and Jesus. Because you'll remember at the end of Deuteronomy, in the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses says to the Hebrews as he's winding up his career, he says, there will come a prophet after me like unto me, but greater than I am. And that prophet will be the one who will lead you into all truth. And uh, the, the New Testament picks that up as one of the great prophecies of Christ. So here is Moses who says, in due time there's coming somebody like me, but he's going to be better than me. Isn't that interesting? Moses was the humblest of all men, you know. But he says, when the Christ comes, he's going to be like me. But he's going to be better than me. I've given you a bit of an image. He'll give you the reality, the real thing. Now, uh, you see, uh, see the way he is. But the interesting thing is when you come to Joshua, Joshua is the name Jesus, as we say. So there is a very real sense in which J Joshua is an image of the, of the of the Jesus that is to come, the Christ that is to come, the Savior, because Joshua means salvation. And Jesus, you know, means exactly the same thing. Now, you get another interesting similarity in the book of uh, Joshua to, the, to, the, to uh, the book of Acts. It's the story of Achan, because you'll remember they had this glorious beginning. God, in a marvelous way, led them across the Jordan River. God led them into the land. They had that ceremony of circumcision in which they took the seal of God on them in their own flesh. And then, you will remember, they came to the city of Jericho and marched around it seven days. And on seven days, the walls fell in this incredible miracle. And they won this massive victory at the beginning of the conquest of the land. Now, that's very similar to what happened at Pentecost. You remember the disciples were in the upper room with the doors locked and the Holy Spirit came, turned them loose and they went down and they started uh, to take the world out of that. And you and I are sitting here today because of that as a direct product of what happened in that upper room when the Spirit came. Now they were in that upper room as a direct product of what happened when Joshua led the children of Israel into, into, uh, into Israel. Now you get after that victory, they come up against a little town and they said, what was it, 3,000 men will be enough to take that. So they go up to Ai and 36 of them get killed and they turn tail and flee like fury. And Joshua gets down on his face and said, God, you failed us. And God said, no, you, you, you failed me. And then he says, you've got uncleanness in your midst. And so they start until they find Achan and his Babylonish garment and his silver and his gold hidden under his tent. And Joshua says, when you take care, or God says, when you take care of that, you'll be victorious again. Now, I don't know about you, but I was a pastor for years. 
you'd like the blessing of God on you on Sunday morning. But if you've got stuff hidden under your tent that doesn't belong there, when you get up on Sunday morning, you're going to be a bag full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, pure hot air. I've been there. You don't play with sin. You do not play with sin. And so God deals harshly with it. Why so harshly? Because God knew that if they got corrupted at that stage of the game, it was all over with. And so he dealt harshly with it. You get to the book of Acts. See, I come from a background where I didn't like these stories. I thought they were cruel and brutal. But you remember Ananias and Sapphira? But the salvation of the world numerically, is more important than two individuals. And so you get in the book of Acts, the same thing, and then the explosion of the Christian church takes place. Now, uh, there's one interesting difference in Joshua from Acts. In Joshua, you build the wall to separate you from the world. And in the book of Acts, you tear them down so the body of Christ, the church, can get to the world. Now, why? It was a radically different day. It was impossible for a person to do in Joshua's day what Paul did in his day. There was no way it could be done. And so, God knew that he had to build let, the, let them build walls of protection so that there could be at least one foothold for God in his world. And then from that foothold, when it was established, the walls could come down and the church could go out and reach the world. Very much like what happened in the Second World War in Europe. We fought like fury to get a foothold and had to have a foothold. And then after we got it, you know, you could open up but you fought, you built your perimeters and you built them hard so that you would not lose the foothold there. Now that's the way I understand the book of Joshua. Now you may have problems with that. Then uh, join the crowd. I've had my stack of problems across the years. But as I've lived with it, it's uh, the wisdom of God because they got, God got a foothold and you and I are here today because of this. Okay. Now, uh, it was a different day and so there were different needs. You see, if you take the long view and fit Joshua into that whole story, what is God about? God is about winning his world back to himself. Or better than that, God is about getting his world to his place, to the place where the world can know him and know who he is and get the benefits of the knowledge of him. Because if you ever come to know knowledge, you will find that that very knowledge is saving. It is liberating. It is enriching. And God does not want us in bondage. And so he wants us to know him. And so you get this uh, Joshua fitted in between. He looks back to Abraham. And then he looks forward to Christ. Now that brings me to uh, this point. I love the future orientedness of the whole story. I told you yesterday about uh, the Hebrew. He stands facing the past. He can see it all. And most people want to move back into something more comfortable that they've known. But God says, I want to take you into a world you've never known, and it's going to be better than anything you've ever known. The best is yet to be. And so you need to get your hand into his so he can lead you. That is what's illustrated in this crazy conclusion to the book of Joshua. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem. Now, how long since Joseph had died? Anybody venture a guess? <laughs> Dale, how long? <laughs> Who took care of Joseph's bones for between three and four hundred years? Now, let me, let me tell you a story that I heard when I was young. The old guy who was preaching was a fellow by the name of Henry Clay Morris, and he was the president of Asbury College. 
the founder of Asbury Seminary. And he had a sermon on... Uh, when Joseph died, you will remember if you look at the tail end of the book of Genesis, he said to his son, now don't bury me in Egypt because we're not home. Uh, he took this passage and applied it to Abraham. When God came to Abraham when he was 75 years of age and said, uh, Abe, I'm going to give you a son. And Abe said, Lord, you know how old I am? More than that, you know how old Sarah is? And he said, yeah, I know how old Sarah is. But I'm going to give you a son. And they talked it over enough that Abraham decided God meant what he was saying and that he actually was going to have a son. So uh, old Dr. Morrison said the next day, Abe went downtown to the local furniture store and walked in and looked at Jake, who ran the local furniture store, and said, Jake, if you got any good baby buggies now? And Jake looked at this 75-year-old man and said, Abe, what you going to do with a baby buggy? Well, he said, we're going to have a baby at our house. He said, which one of your servant girls? And Abe said, now, Jake, pull yourself together. This is going to be hard on you. But Miss Sarah is going to have a baby. And Jake looked at his friend Abe and said, Abe, that's impossible. And Abe said, yeah, I know that. But she is. And Jake remonstrated. And Abe said, Jake, do you want to sell a baby buggy? And being a good Hebrew, he went and got the most expensive one in the house. Brought it back and Abe bought the baby buggy. And then pushed it home. And said, every woman down the street got a crink in her neck as she looked out the window and peered at this white-headed old man pushing an empty baby buggy down the street. And when he got it home... He pulled it up across the steps and across the porch and parked it next to the fireplace in the family room. And then, for the next 25 years, everybody that came in said, Abe, what's with the baby buggy? And Abe lifted his hands and pointed to the hills of Israel and said, do you see these hills? And the guy said, yeah, I see these hills. What do they have to do with the baby buggy? Well, he said, one of these days, these hills are going to belong to my descendants. His neighbor said, you don't even have a baby. No, he said, that's the reason I got the baby buggy. I'll never forget that sermon, you know. Now, do you know that's biblical faith? Biblical faith is future-oriented. The best is not behind us. The best, wait a minute, depends on whether you're a Hebrew or a Gentile. If you're a Hebrew, the best is behind you. But if you're us, the best is in front of us. We're headed for it. And it is to come. That's God. That's the kind of God we worship. The future is going to be better than the past because of who he is. That is, if we are a part of his redemptive purposes for the world. And so in Abraham, the first man of faith, you get that future orientation. Now, how does it work out in Abraham's life? You remember when Sarah died? You remember what he did? He went to the city gate where the elders sat. And uh, he said, uh, have you heard the news? And they said, yes, we've heard that you've had a great loss. You've lost your wife. And he said, that's right. And he said, I need a place to bury her. And they said, take the best of our tomb. We respect you highly. Now, you see, Abe was not a local citizen. And as, the as he was not a Canaanite, he could not own real estate locally. It was illegal for him even to own place enough to bury his wife. So they said to him, take the best of our tomb. No, he said, I don't want to do that. He said, Ephron over here has got a lot. I'd like to buy it for him. There's a cave there. It's called Machpelah. And I'd like to buy that and bury my wife there. Now, one of the most interesting bits of negotiation in Scripture took place there. And Abraham bought a cave to bury Sarah in. Do you know what that was? That was an act of faith. 
Because what he was saying is, I don't want my wife buried in somebody else's property. And one of these days, all this property is going to belong to my descendants. And I want her buried in something a Hebrew owned. I don't know about you, but that that moves me. I want to ask if you've got any caves of Machpelah in your life. I want to ask if you've got any baby buggies in your life. You know, I preached that about 30 years ago to a bunch of free Methodists in Canada in a camp, and at the end of the camp, they gave Elsie and me a baby buggy. <laughs> so we took it home and parked it side of the fireplace <laughs> as a stimulus to our faith. God's people have a future. We, we're not a people with no future. It is a glorious future, and our arms are supposed to be open to it. You remember Jacob goes down to Egypt. And when he gets down to Egypt, the day comes when he died. And before he died, he called his sons in. <laughs> this is not where we belong. We're not home yet. And God is going to take us home. So don't you bury me here. Take me back and bury me the way Abraham buried Sarah. So Joseph had to pull together a big, you know, hold, cortege all the process and carry Jacob back and bury him there. But when it came to Joseph and he died, he said, don't you bury me until you get to Canaan. And it was over 300 years. And every Egyptian kid that came in said to his Jewish buddy friend, what's that box in the living room? And the Hebrew kids, that's Grandpa Joseph's bones. Well, don't you bury your dead? Yeah. When we get home. I want to ask you how much future orientation there is in your faith. What are you expecting? What are you asking for? What are you trusting for? You know, I found that the deeper a Christian is, the more future-oriented the person is. And you know where it comes from? It comes when that marvelous transformation of grace takes place. When we get through that process where we've been living for ourselves and grace sets us free and we begin to live for someone beyond ourselves. Haven't you known people like that? Elsie and I had our first full-time pastor at Full Country Churches in eastern North Carolina. I had 850 members scattered across two counties. I had four prayer meetings a week, and the schedule was full. But I had one great gift from God. She was 70-some years of age, weighed about 90, 89 pounds. She ran for the United States Senate on the Republican ticket in 1928. Uh, a woman running in 1928 was enough, but a woman running as a Republican in North Carolina in 1928, well, that's the kind of person she was. Her name was... She came to see me every morning at a quarter of seven. But what made it worse was she always brought something nice. She'd bring watermelon, she'd bring fruit, she'd bring something else. She didn't want her pastor sleeping. But you know what she'd tell me when she came at a quarter of seven? She'd tell me all the people she'd visited and which ones of them I needed to visit. You hear me on that? So I was interested in this woman. Couldn't be otherwise. You know? I always loved the leverage she had on the bishop because she took him a old country ham every, every conference time, you know. She, she knew her stuff. But anyway, after I'd been there about six weeks, I preached a sermon on missions. And I'd only been there about six weeks, so I didn't know her. When she came out the door, she draped those 89 pounds sort of around my neck and said, Thank you, I've waited for 20 years for a preacher who'd preach on mission. Will you come see me? So I went. And Mike, she gave me a stack of Alliance Weekly, is that high? 
She was a Methodist, but A.B. Simpson was an inspiration. Then I found out she had a son who was one of the more prominent doctors in North Carolina, but she had educated six doctors in India. The greatest thoracic surgeon in India was a woman, and she'd educated her. Now, I also had a banker in the community, in the church. was always hurting for missing. He knew she was going to die and go to the poorhouse because she gave everything away. When he died, his wife found out they didn't even own their own home. It's an old story, isn't it? Well, before Miss Fay died, she sent for me. And I went, and she handed me a sheet I'd never seen one before. It was 100 shares of General Electric stock. I said, what do I do with this? I'd never seen one before. She said, use it for the kingdom. So every year when the income came from it, I'd ship it to India. I was 38. And God began to say to me, I want you to go to graduate school. And he led me to Brandeis. Very expensive. I said, Lord, I've got a wife and five kids. How under the sun and no money? I couldn't get a scholarship because I was religious. I was Protestant. Everybody else was on government scholarship. Everybody else in the department had his way paid through. And I said, how can I do it? He said, what about that GE stock? I sold that GE stock and got $3,800 and began a three-year course at Brandeis University for a Ph.D. Asbury College got a president for 18 years out of Miss Fanny. I had a chance to preach to people like some of these guys sitting here in chapel regularly. Miss Fanny. Isn't heaven going to be interesting when we get the real picture of who's responsible for what? Let me tell you, none of our ideas about who's doing what are correct. None of them. Because he's using people nobody's ever heard of to make the difference. Why? Because they're living for the kingdom. And they're living for the future. They're not living for the present. They're living for the future. I want to know if you're living for the future. Have you got any investment that's going to pay dividends down the road? See, I believe that's what a biblical Christian is. <laughs> that's a little different from our American philosophy of getting old, isn't it? We get insecure, and we're going to have enough to survive. And we're not to be fooled. But you know, as I read Joshua getting ready for this, you know the thing I kept coming back to? But again and again and again, where I would read where he says, I want a people that love me with all their heart and believe I'll take care of them. I kept coming back to Jesus and the rich ruler. Because do you know what he said to him? The rich ruler said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he said, well, keep the commandments. Pentateuch. Well, he said, Master, I've done that. Now, you may think he was lying. I'm not sure he was. But whether he was or not, Jesus said, okay. One thing you like. If you want to be complete, <laughs> go sell everything you've got and give it to the poor and come take up your cross and follow me. Do you know, I've winced under that all my life. I'm confessing that. You know, that one's, that's hard on me. Go sell everything you've got and give it to the poor and come take it. How can you preach that? And then you know one day what happened to me? What's a good trade for Jesus? And here's the way it was formulated in my mind. Has the guy who's got everything plus God, is he a whit richer than the person who has nobody but God?
And the person who doesn't have anything but God, is he a whit poorer than the person who's got everything plus God? Now, I'm not asking you to go sell what you've got. That's not my business. That's not my business at all. Some of you need to take what you've got and use it more wisely. But I just want to ask the question. Is the guy who only has God a whit poorer than the fellow who's got the world plus God? No, he's not a whit poor. Because God's enough. He's enough. But we don't believe that. We don't get close enough to him to know it. Because you see, if you've got him, and you belong to him. He cares more about you than you do about him. And he'll take care of you. And it is safe to trust him. But you'll never do it unless you get close enough to him that you find he's trustworthy. He'll make you stick your neck out occasionally. And you'll say, wait a minute, you'll wince. But if you do it, You'll find nobody loses who trusts God. And you know what would turn this kind of culture inside out? Is to have some people get that close to God. I don't mean to be fooled. That's not what I'm talking about. Foolishness. And you can be fleshly religious. You can be religious in the flesh. And you're a rather successful young man, businessman who got religious. So he gave up his job and everything and started into the ministry and he was, he was dead wrong and it was a disaster. But you know, when he sidles up next to you and the connections are good enough that you're aware it's he, it's absolutely safe to trust him. 